This is our bond program summary for the 2019 bond. So again, these are the categories of spending by issuance. Um, you can see again, we are heavily invested in low income housing. That is more than a third of the 600 million. Um, and we've also added two categories for this bond, senior housing and educator housing. So spending by category, if you remember from the last slide, um, we have completely issued our public housing category funds. Um, and we are projecting to be fully spent in that category by the end of 2026. Low-income housing is 84% issued, and we are projecting that that will be fully spent in 2028. Middle-income and preservation is 78% issued and is projected to be fully spent in 2027, which means that senior housing and educator housing are really what's going to be the bulk of the third issuance. Um, senior housing is gonna be more than 100 million, but we do have four identified senior housing projects and three are in pre-development, so plenty of opportunities to spend that money in the next few years. Same thing with educator housing. Um, the full 20 million does still need to be issued, but we do have two identified educator projects that that money is eligible for. This is our bond project location map. Um, it looks a little bit different from the map that we usually present to you guys. We've broken out a couple of different categories and given them different colors this year. Um, so we have down payment assistance housing, along with small sites preservation, which we've broken out separately, and then multifamily developments by units. And again, this is our unit production summary. Uh, this lists out all of the projects that we're funding by number of units and where they are in development. Twice as big of a bond as the 2015 bond, we're projecting to have about twice as many units. Um, right now, they're really across the board and where they are in development, about not quite 1,400 in pre-development, 1,300 in construction, and we've already completed almost 500. And with that, I'll be happy to take any questions on the 2019 bond. I have a question about the preservation category. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and how the funding? Great segue. Yes. I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions on the 2019? Well, just a real quick defining one. <clears throat> on the last slide, of, there was a project on the map in the inner Richmond district. Is that the THDC development that's on the corner of 6th and Geary, Tenderloin, Tenderloin Housing, housing Clinic. Clinic. I'd have to check where THC is located, but it's Tenderloin Housing Clinic. I'm pretty sure that's what it is, but I figured I'd have you here, I'll ask you. Okay. We can find out for you, sure. TNDC. Oh, TNDC, excuse me. TNDC. Two oh one eighty. 201, that, that sounds about right. Yeah. Oh, the projects, excuse me. Yeah, so I don't think I don't think that project is funded by the 2019 bond. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the specific address mm -hmm. to see what that project is. Um, yeah, apologies, I don't know off the top of my head. They're pretty far along with it. I mean, it looks like it's five or six stories tall. I, well, I came here on the bus today, went right by it. Excellent. Engendering the question. Yeah, I mean, it, it is 
between 81 and 120 units. So, all right, and I will turn it over to Johnny to talk about the 2016 right, thank you. Preservation Seismic Safety Program. So I would. Uh, okay, great, thank you. Yeah. The Affordable Housing Geo Bond uh, 2016 Preservation and Seismic Safety, otherwise known as PASS, our PASS loan uh, product, um, was uh, voted on by voters in November of 2016 to repurpose the existing bond um, and issuance of up to 260 million um, towards uh, preserving affordable housing and existing housing at risk of market rate conversion, protecting San Franciscans living in apartments at risk of displacement, and improving the earthquake resilience of San Francisco's building stock. Uh, the loan product provides permanent affordability restrictions for deferred loans and below market rate loans. The maximum average rent is 80% AMI, and the maximum income is 120% AMI. Uh, with these loans, there is uh, a prohibition on capital improvement pass-throughs uh, for any of the rehab work that the buildings um, take on. And the eligible uses are seismic retrofit to unreinforced masonry buildings, the acquisition rehab and preservation of housing, um, and we talked about small sites being five to about 25 units, large sites, anything above that, and it also includes SRO hotels. Uh, what it is not eligible for use is new construction and acquisition without rehabilitation. So there has to be some level of rehab in order for these funds to be available. I'm gonna jump over to model. Um, it provides direct financing for acquisition and rehab. Uh, it, it, it is uh, one of the loan products, one of the only loan products for preservation that we offer here in, at Mayor's Office of Housing. Um, it is, provides below market rate of interest rate and terms. Um, that uh, do not have any competition on the market. We offer 40-year loan terms in comparison to 10-year loan terms on the uh, regular market. And uh, as far as interest rates, 2019 series um, with, had an average rate of 3.4. Series C series, which uh, was issued in 2020, had an interest rate of 2.57. And we're expecting our 2024 Series X, assuming that we do um, allocate these funds, would be 5.75, and that's what we're estimating. Um, we are not uh, sure of the date yet. We're waiting to see what our preservation planning will look like this year, but uh, we expect it to be sometime uh, in late 2024. And also to add, uh, uh, in Series X, which will be the final um, uh, allocation of these funds, we have about 98 million left um, to use towards preservation. Um, I also wanna talk a little bit about changes to our past loan program post-COVID. Um, we saw due to the uh, number of units that were unable to cover rent uh, due to the delays in, in state reimbursement of, of rents. Um, we have increased our debt service ratio from 1.1 to 1.5. We've doubled our vacancy assumptions. Um, this allows sponsors to have more cash flow and weather future financial challenges. Um, and we also are bundling projects together. So we talk about five unit, four unit buildings by bundling together. Uh, there is some cost savings there um, across multiple sites. Um, that is all that I have on the past loan program. I'm open to any questions and um, or comments you guys may have. Okay. Can you take public comment? 
Oh, yeah, you had a reservation? No, no, no. Questions, yeah. I answered it? Okay, good. Questions from the committee? Great, thank you very much. Public comments? Yes, please. Great. Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. That would conclude this item. Can you move on to item number five? Item number five, liaison report on the 2008 and 2012 Clean and Safe Park Geobond programs. Antoha. All right, thank you. So good morning to everybody here, to my fellow uh, commissioners. Um, so yeah, last uh, meeting I missed my liaison report, so I'm gonna give a, a brief report. I did meet with uh, Stacy Bradley and her team with the uh, Parks Department, as well as Shannon Cairns with the Port of San Francisco. Uh, Ms. Bradley's and her team thoroughly reviewed several projects and programs, including trails, mini parks, and playgrounds that uh, are, that these playgrounds are, are well received and they're in process of being built and many of them are completed. I'm especially, a fond, I'm, speci I'm especially fond of the completion of the fitness court at Lake Merced. Um, I've been walking past that fenced area for a few months leading up to uh, this month and to my delight a couple of weeks ago, the fence was down and voila, there was a fitness center there and I was like, wow, this is awesome. This is just like they have at the uh, Marina Green. So I'm excited about that as a playground for adults. Um, and uh, the port and uh, our parks department, I, I, I will say the port and our parks department are maximizing the funds of these bonds. Um, you know, it, as a matter of fact, even with the Martin Luther King Park, that new playground is something that's exciting because I, I live down the, up the street from that. Um, so that is my report. Bunny's being well used. I see it all over the city. Thank you, Member Pantoja. Um, do you, is there any discussion or questions? Okay, Natasha, can you take public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Okay, thank you. Can you move on to item number six? Item number six, liaison report on the earthquake safety ESER bond program. Member Tung. Thank you. Um, I'm proud to present this liaison report to my other commissioners here. Um, my liaison report for today includes a status update on the ESER bond authorizations and issuances, a report out on a facilities tour that member Pendoha and I took earlier this month, and a report out on a discussion that I had with the ESER project managers last week. Uh, in terms of status update, the ESER bond program encompasses three separate voter approved bond measures in 2010, 2014, and 2020. The city has issued all of the bonds under the 2010 ESER bond as well as the 2014 ESER bond. These were $412 million and $400 million authorizations, respectively. Staff is looking to completely close out the 2010 ESER bond soon and then shift focus to spending down the relatively small amount of remaining 2014 ESER bond proceeds and interest earnings. For the 2020 ESER bond, the city has issued bonds twice under this authorization thus far, issuing an aggregate of about $168 million of the $629 million authorization. Um, there are several key components to it. Uh, the ones that I would highlight at this time include the emergency firefighting water system, 
the neighborhood fire stations and support facilities, district police stations and support facilities, uh, the disaster response facility at Keyser Pavilion, which is a joint project between uh, the uh, emergency response teams as well as recreation, and then the 911 response facilities. There's more detailed information on the status of the ESER projects uh, available through quarterly reporting that's done by Public Works on their website. And I reviewed the most recent report and presentations that cover the quarter ending December 2023. So my comments include the information that's captured within those reports. And I would like to thank the Public Works staff for preparing and publishing those reports. It provides a great deal of transparency um, to myself and as, as well as other interested parties. Um, a few notable items that uh, I saw as I was looking through the reports. One, um, I think, is the, the fire training facility. It's a significant portion of the neighborhood fire stations and support facilities component of the 2020 ESER bond. Uh, it's been noted in the report and discussed in other venues, but because of cost escalation at that particular facility, it seems to be crowding out some of the funding that otherwise would be available for fire station um, modernization, replacement, or rehabilitation. So that's something that we'll have to, of course, keep in mind. Uh, understandably, there's been cost escalation across all capital programs, so this is not unique to that particular facility, but given its size and uh, how much of the funding in the ECR 2020 bonds it uh, takes up, um, it's notable that there are some projects that will not uh, be completed within the original scope. Um, I think we also understand that with the city of our size and the amount of infrastructure that we have, that there will always be continuing needs for capital improvements and modernization. So the fire stations and other projects that are not completed under the 2020 ESER bonds, I presume will be likely considered in the next ESER bond, which I believe is either in 2027 or 2028 when they will go back to voters for an additional authorization request. Um, the other project I would like to, to call out is the disaster response facility at Keysar Pavilion. And uh, in this uh, particular project, I want to express my appreciation for st staff's thoughtfulness in approaching this project as a disaster response facility in an emergency, and also using it as a recreational or for recreational purposes on a day-to-day -day basis, thus making the most of their bond dollars. For the facilities tour, um, Member Pantoa and I toured some of the Easter projects either earlier this month. So thank you, Member Pantoa, for joining me on those tours. And I want to thank Chief Miller and the firefighters for, for providing us with a tour of the facilities and coordinating with the appropriate people to make that happen. Uh, we visited three facilities, Fireboat Station number 35, which is on the Embarcadero at Pier 22 and a half, Fire Station number eight, which is in the South of Market area, and Fire Station number five in the Fillmore. Uh, we selected these projects to see some of the new facilities and how the bond programs have been executed, but also to see a fire station that has not undergone um, the modernization yet, just to see a before and after comparison and contrast. Uh, fire station number 35 is unique insofar as it is a floating fire station, uh, houses the city's fireboats. Uh, it's a very impressive facility. Um, and of course, the fireboats are dispatched to emergencies on and along the bay, such as at the warehouse fire at Pier 45 a few years ago, so providing uh, an essential function. And they also can uh, serve as um, additional pumping facilities for firefighting water into land-based manifolds in the event of emergency, so obviously very critical in those types of situations. Fire station number eight is a station that has had some improvements over the years, but is in need of significant additional capital work. Um, the, fire freighter, fire, excuse me, the firefighters at this station 
uh, work around the layout, uh, historical layout, and the um, electrical system limitations in order to um, provide their mission or execute their mission. But um, that fire station as it exists today did not contemplate the modern demands that uh, either because of equipment and, and, and other needs. So obviously not ideal. Um, in contrast, fire station number five is a ground up seismic replacement of the 1950s era fire station that previously occupied that location. The differences between station number eight and station number five were quite apparent. Um, and I appreciate the thought that was put into the design and layout of station number five, uh, such as designing the interior and exterior in such a way to facilitate training exercises on premise and in inclement weather. Um, and again, thank you to everyone that was involved in those uh, facilities tours. Finally, um, to wrap up my liaison report, um, I had a discussion with the project managers earlier this month. Uh, thank you to Magdalena, who is the ESER project, or program manager, sorry, and all of the project managers for their time. Uh, we had a good discussion that covered a broad range of topics with specific anecdotes to provide clarity on those topics. Uh, for example, we did discuss the fire training facility and some of the cost escalations um, that, we pre or that I previously mentioned. Um, also speaking with the project managers, uh, it seemed that there was some desire for greater clarity and transparency around the negotiation process with PG&E, for example, um, and their infrastructure requirements. As I understand it, the requirements for facility power, for example, primary power versus secondary power and so forth are subject to some kind of negotiation between the city and PG&E, um, and that can materially affect project cost. So I hope to continue having some discussions with staff to better understand that. And I also plan to follow up with staff on how administrative overhead is allocated to the capital programs. Um, we started with some high-level discussions during the call with the project managers, and I intend to follow up with Kelly Griffin from the Public Works team uh, for more detailed information. Uh, and that concludes my liaison report for the Easter Bond Program. Thank you. Thank you so much, Member Tung, for that very thorough report. Um, Natasha, can you, or are there any items for, any questions or items for discussion? from the committee? I'll make comments. I was able to tour with uh, Tim, um, and uh, well, thank you for that. It was uh, quite an, you know, an experience. We saw the, some of the best facilities, and we saw some of the worst of our older facilities. And it's, uh, you know, the fire, the, the firemen there at, at the house actually keeping it together. Really, some of them come from construction backgrounds, and they fix their own lights. And I mean, basically, when you when, uh, Commissioner Tung was talking about the electrical infrastructure. Basically, if you use the microwave, the power of the refrigerator goes out, right? Because it's just, it's just, it there needs it needs a complete overhaul, you know. Um, so that was, uh, you know, we have the some of the best facilities. And now we really need to work on these other facilities to get them up to par, you know, because that this is. Uh, in San Francisco, we have a lot of um, buildings and a lot of different buildings, and we need these firehouses ready to to uh, respond. And they still do it with, as they're limping along with their facility, they're they're doing it, and they love their firehouse. To certain, you know, it's uh, there's a long history there, but I think it's really important that we continue to try to help the uh, our departments. So that was all my comments, and and it, and it's funny. It was um, that the fireboat was pretty awesome. You know, so anyway, thank you. Just for context, how old is that older facility that you toured? Do you know? I think it was designed for like horses and carriages. <laughs> um, that old, okay. <laughs> there, there, the substructure actually below, there's actually a, 
it, it's so old. The, the plumbing is actually, I, I think it's like after earthquake. <laughs> I mean, it was, there's like these hidden areas to, to get the plumbing to work right. You have to crawl down and get to uh, the electrical. It's just, it's just been built upon so many times. Their laundry. So, you know, they're, they're washing their gear. They had to put it into a place where it was actually an open area. They, it was enclosed with a, a skylight, but the skylight, it was just done um, so much after the fact. They have issues in that room constantly. So, yeah. I don't, have, I don't know. Do you remember if they mentioned the date on? I don't recall the specific date of that yeah. fire station, but uh, I mean, to be fair, there have been some improvements to it over time. Um, but because of the layout, it's not ideal. And for example, the area where they do um, hazardous material um, uh, turnout, turn out of their gear, it's not in the ideal location. Again, as, as Member Patoa is mentioning, the location of the laundry facilities is, is less than ideal. Um, they don't have, or they've, they've reworked some of their wiring to make sure that the equipment and infrastructure is running, but is not ideal. If someone were going to go in and look at the electrical panels, they might have other thoughts about how to best uh, equip that station to be put it mildly. The firehouse. <laughs> okay, any other items for discussion on that? Tasha, can you take public comment, please? Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Okay, thank you. Can you please move on to item number seven? Number seven, liaison report on the Homelessness Health Parks 2020 Recovery Bond Program. Member Sanderlin. Okay, this is one of our newer bond issues that we've been uh, receiving reports on. Um, this bond provides funding for recreation and parks, public works, homelessness and supportive housing, and public health. So a very all-encompassing uh, bond, and I'm going to break that down into pieces. Uh, the total bond issue was, or, or bond program to be issued, uh, $487.5 million, uh, broken down as follows. Uh, $207 million for facilities that provide treatment and supporting housing uh, for the homeless and mentally ill. $239 million for parks and recreation facilities, and a meager $41.5 million for curb ramps, street resurfacing, street structures, and pedestrian right-of-way. Uh, two bond issues have occurred to date, the first for $425 million, and the second for $8.7 million. Um, first, and probably most comprehensively, I'm going to cover the status of the facilities that provide treatment and supportive housing for homeless and mentally ill. Um, as we all know and heard in a report earlier this morning, uh, an area of great interest to not just the citizens of San Francisco, but the uh, greater uh, national community. The Department of Public Health is working to replace 172 residential step-down units on Treasure Island. Um, as Treasure Island undergoes a complete redevelopment, existing units are obligated to be replaced. Uh, and the Department of Public Health is planning to increase the total capacity uh, by approximately 40% beyond the existing beds for a total of 242 step-down beds, up from 172. Uh, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development has a memorandum of, memorandum of understanding with Mercy Housing to develop the site, uh, and the project is currently in the design phase. 
Construction is beginning, expected to begin early 2026, and 43.5 million is allocated for this project alone. For psychiatric emergency service uh, services, the interior renovation of uh, Zuckerberg will include a remodel of the old emergency room, six seclusion rooms, and a 300% larger space for day rooms and patient care. Um, early demolition of the old emergency room is completed. Um, this was funded with the 2016 bond funds. Um, and then the, re the construction that will begin um, from this bond issue is expected to be completed in the spring of 2026. For permanent supporting housing and emergency shelters, uh, just over 30 million has been issued to date. The Department of Homeless and Supportive Housing is targeting acquisition of a site that provides a 75-bed navigation center serving homeless youth. Uh, for permanent supportive housing, bond funds will be issued in 2025 to fund 145 newly constructed units and to rehabilitate 188 newly acquired units. Planning is underway for a seismic retrofit and rehabilitation of two city-acquired sites. Uh, those are 835 Turk and 685 Ellis. An additional 145 studio apartments are proposed um, at 1633 Valencia, and this is targeted for housing for homeless, homeless adults aged 55 and older. Construction is estimated to be completed in October 2025 for that project. Um, and of note, the housing acquisition um, under this um, program has met the mayor's goal in just under two years. So a lot of progress um, underway um, since this bond issue, um, which is great to see. Uh, next, uh, I'll move on to the status of parks and recreation facilities. First bond issuance includes 101 million for neighborhood parks, 55.6 million for recovery parks, and 6.2 million for citywide parks. Um, 2024 bond encumbrances include uh, 53.6 million for Portsmouth Square, 38 million for Gene Friend Recreation Center, 20.6 million for Japantown Peace Plaza, and 1.7 million for Buchanan Mall. For the majority of the parks covered by this bond, most are in the construction phase. Um, the exception is Jackson Playground, which is still in the design phase with construction expected to begin in 2026. And then finally, the status of the public works, right of way, um, street resurfacing and curb ramps. Of the 41.5 million in bond funds dedicated to this portion of the project, the majority of it, 31.5 million, is for street resurfacing, and all of these bonds were issued in 2021. The street resurfacing goal was to cover approximately 300 city blocks, and 449 blocks have been resurfaced with this, these funds, which is 49% better than the goal, uh, and this work is complete. Five million was dedicated to curb ramps with a goal of constructing 121, and uh, the project was able to construct 127, so 5% better than the goal, and this work is also complete. Um, the work that is still underway for this portion of the bond program is for street structures and plazas. With $5 million dedicated to structures and plazas, the goal is to fund the maintenance and repairs of 11 structures and one plaza, 
Uh, at this time, six street structures have been completed and there are five remaining. Um, that's kind of uh, our uh, update. Brian and I sort of jointly manage this. Um, I will say this is a very much a coordinate, coordinated effort among the project team managers, uh, Taylor, Edmund, Christine, Kathy. Um, they're very great about providing ongoing updates on the stati status of the various projects covered by this very comprehensive um, bond program. So we very much commend the prog progress that has been made to date and look forward to future updates. You're here. <laughs> you cover the waterfront. <laughs> Thank you, Member Sanderlin. Um, I have one question. You you mentioned the 172 step down units on Treasure Island. What does step down refer to? Does anyone know that? The more comprehensive know. answer. I don't know either. I, don't know I, I saw that and it raised the same question. Yeah. Didn't make me curious enough to follow up on it. I, I did follow up on one of the, uh, when they they talked about uh, low barrier shelters, and I wanted a better definition of that, but I asked for it pretty late, so I don't have the answer for you today. I have an idea what it means, yeah. but I wanted to see them write it down for me. Not only what they were specifically, but how many more they have planned. How many more? How many they've built? How many more they have planned? And how close they are to opening up the ones that are planned? So when I get that information, I'll be happy to share it with you. Great. Yeah, it's it's all supportive housing, right? So I'm sure it has something to do with that. Okay. All right. Any other questions from committee members? Okay. Thank you, Natasha. Can you take public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. Okay, please move on to item number eight. Item number eight, presentation from the City Services Auditor regarding the whistleblower program <coughs> and possible action by the committee in response to such presentation. Good morning, Vice Chair Crawford, uh, other commissioners, thank you. My name is David Jensen. I'm the program manager for the whistleblower program. Uh, with me today is our director of audits, Mark De La Rosa. Also with me is uh, Stephen Munoz and Eric Ellums of the whistleblower program. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today and give you a couple of updates about what we've been up to since last we met. Uh, some of the information you'll probably have seen before, so we'll uh, endeavor to go through it as quickly as possible in the interest of your time. Uh, the whistleblower program is uh, uh, a program that is authorized by both state and local uh, legislation. Next slide, please. Um, some of this legislation uh, spells out what is within our jurisdiction to investigate. That would be uh, misuse of city funds, uh, improper activities by city offices or employees, deficiencies in the quality and delivery of government services, as well as inefficient government practices. Uh, the enabling legislation also spells out what is not within our jurisdiction to investigate and mandates referral to other city departments. 
Um, and uh, we'll go on to the next slide, if we could. Um, to, uh, to help us do this, we have assembled a diverse group of professionals uh, to uh, handle these reports that we receive. Uh, that includes uh, uh, somebody who's graduated from law school, somebody who has a paralegal certification. Uh, we've got auditors, uh, we've got trained policy analysts. Uh, so it's a very diverse group that we're able to uh, apply to any number of situations uh, that we receive reports about. Uh, the next slide we have for you is a historical perspective of the number of reports we have received over the years. And generally, that's been an upward trend uh, since the program's inception. We've got 10 years of data here for you, I believe. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions as we go, or we can save those for the end as well. Uh, but again, it's a generally an upward trend as uh, people know more about, about the program and uh, continue to report more things to us. Uh, the next slide we have for you uh, involves uh, data uh, about uh, the most recent quarter we closed on December 31st of 2023. Uh, and at that time, we had uh, 92 reports were open at the beginning of the quarter. That should be, I believe, September 30th, uh, now that I look at that. Uh, but we received 129 reports for over Q2, and we closed out 148. And uh, at the end of the quarter, at uh, December 31st, at 11.59, there were 73 reports that we had open. For uh, this next slide, uh, we continue to be able to receive reports in any number of ways uh, from uh, people who are interested in uh, pointing out how government isn't working in their lives. Uh, we can take uh, reports via our online portal. Uh, we've got an email system up and running. Uh, 311 goes 24 hours a day. Uh, we can dust off the fax machine and take off a, uh, a report that way as well. Um, we want the lowest barrier of entry as possible. Uh, to clap back to a phrase that was just used, that means we will, we will take your information however you want to get it to us. Uh, we're happy to uh, take that in and uh, determine whether or not uh, that's something that's within our jurisdiction or not. Uh, Vice Chair Crawford had a question about uh, uh, reporters choosing uh, their disclosure status. And so most of the people continue uh, to choose to report anonymously. Uh, that decision is completely up to the reporter and uh, we work with them to, uh, uh, to take the information from them uh, if they wanna name, name themselves or not. Um, we're here to, to receive that information and respond to it. The next slide we've got for you uh, is uh, regarding our uh, our uh, core goal to close 75% of our reports within 90 days that we investigate. Uh, right now we're doing quite well with that and we're at 90% uh, through Q2 of uh, closing out reports that we receive within 90 days. Uh, reports can go long for any number of reasons. Um, if we go back historically, I think the uh, the, the bars on that, uh, on that graph there towards the right-hand side were a little bit uh, higher. Uh, we made uh, some great focus in Q2 and continue to do so on closing out some of those reports that hadn't been languishing within our system. Uh, so uh, we achieved some success with that, and so we don't have quite as many that were uh, uh, aging uh, in our system as we, as we have in the past. Um, the next slide we've got for you uh, is about uh, the type of reports uh, that we're able to investigate and uh, some information that we've got there for you about uh, reports uh, within that orange box or within our jurisdiction. Um, so we were able to investigate 83 of those 148 reports. Uh, the remainder we uh, uh, were 
charter required to refer out to other people uh, within the city. That can be, for example, the DA's office when we get a report of a crime, DA or the police department when we get a report of a crime. Uh, or it can be uh, uh, when we have a report about uh, somebody being hired into civil service uh, inappropriately, depending on where they are in that process, that can go to either DHR or the Civil Service Commission. Uh, so those are the type of reports that we uh, refer out to other departments. Uh, other reports are uh, uh, greatest hits, uh, you know, reports that we have uh, looked at in the past and have already sort of adjudicated. Uh, if we, uh, we have a significant delay about the same subject matter, we'll often take another look at it if it's warranted. Other times, if we investigated it in the past and come to a, a conclusion, we won't revisit that necessarily. Uh, other examples of uh, reports that we didn't investigate would be something that's like clearly out of our jurisdiction. Uh, the one that I remember most clearly is a, a complaint that somebody uh, brought to us about a ticket that they received in New York City. Uh, that is not within our jurisdiction to investigate. Mm -hmm. uh, the next slide we have for you uh, is the percentage of investigated reports that result in some sort of corrective action. The corrective action can be employee discipline. It uh, can also be a policy change. Um, and so what is uh, remarkable uh, across the 10 years that uh, we've got shown on this graph is just, you know, we're usually within about, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the reports we receive and investigate resulting in some type of corrective action, whether that's an improvement to a system or a uh, corrective action against a staff member, retraining, uh, discipline, uh, up to and including termination. The next slide we have for you uh, is about some of our initiatives for fiscal year 23-24. Um, and on this, uh, we mentioned the uh, a desire to close 75% of reports within 90 days, and we're hitting about 90% of those reports within 90 days. Uh, we also have been uh, issuing our quarterly public reports on the status of program activities. Um, this would be most recently the Q2 report that we were able to get issued within 37 days, I believe it was. That was almost three weeks faster than we've ever done that before. Um, and as we were act to, asked to uh, pick up the pace on getting that report uh, issued, um, we were able to do so by, uh, you know, really focusing on that, and uh, we're pretty proud of that. Uh, we were able to get that out as quickly as we were this time around. Um, next one we've got on the list for you is conduct an annual whistleblower training for all city employees. Every new employee comes through uh, upon hiring. We'll go through a short module, and that short module is also required for every city employee to see once a year. Uh, it's about five five minutes or so, and. Um, just gives them the basic and lets them know how they can contact us when they need to, to get in touch. Uh, we also have available for departments that request it a either 15-minute or 30-minute presentation that we can make to staff meetings or to uh, divisions. Uh, so we can take the show on the road uh, if that's going to be helpful for departments and if they ask for it. We can scale that up, we can scale it down, but we always try and leave some room for Q&A um, because that is uh, uh, what we have found to be the most valuable for the city employees that we present uh, in front of. Uh, the next thing we've got on the list is a uh, department liaison training that we conduct annually. The next one will be uh, scheduled for the 10th of April, um, and everybody on here is welcome to attend. I think you all should get invitations to that. If not, please let us know, uh, and we can send you the, the link to join us up for that. Uh, the theme for this year is going to be connectivity. Uh, we have liaisons in every city department uh, that uh, we leverage for their expertise. 
Um, and then what, we've, uh, what we're aiming to do this time around is to see how we can introduce our liaisons to each other. Um, I'm thinking about a report we had about a parking situation in front of a city uh, facility. Uh, the department had decided that it was appropriate for their employees to park in front of that facility. Um, that didn't sound right to us, and so we checked with MTA, you know, contacted our liaisons, asked them to take a, take a look at it, and got a very different answer from the, uh, the initial one we received from the department. So making that connection between departments is something that we hope to do at this liaison training. Uh, it's something we do every day uh, when we pick up the phone and talk to our liaisons, but hopefully we can begin to establish a connection between these city departments so that they know who to call when they've got a question about parking or they know who to call. They might have a fire safety issue, for example. Uh, so that will be the, uh, the topic of the, of the uh, next training we've got coming up. After that, uh, we're also asked to do a couple of uh, nationwide webinars. Um, in which we present on the best uh, practices in hotlines and whistleblower type programs. Uh, the next one we've got will be on the 17th of April, and that's gonna be a uh, representative from the Multnomah County Auditor's Office on the topic of how to make, uh, make a hotline more effective and accountable. Again, that'll be the 17th of April. You all should be on our distribution list for an invite. If that's not the case, please let us know, and we're happy to, to invite you for that. Uh, we typically get over 100 participants uh, on this webinar from uh, local, from state, from tribal and federal agencies. Um, uh, we've had uh, people come in all across North America, and I think Mariana Islands is the farthest we've got, which at a 10 o'clock start time for us is, I don't want to even think about how early <laughs> that is. That's probably even tomorrow at that point for us. And finally, um, we... Uh, uh, do an ongoing review of our practices and procedures just to, to fine-tune everything that, we, uh, that we've got on our, on our books uh, to make sure that uh, we're up to date with the uh, policies and procedures, uh, responding to the situations uh, as they change. Uh, COVID uh, changed everything for everybody, uh, including us. And so as we respond to the ever-changing uh, circumstances on the ground, we may need to tweak a policy here or, or practice there. Uh, so that's something we're always taking a look at to be as most flexible as we can be in responding to uh, the matters that are brought to our attention. And then finally, uh, I've left a couple of uh, placeholders for you to get in touch with us uh, if you have any questions about what I've presented today uh, or also to uh, get on our distribution list for an invite to the webinar or to the liaison training coming up in April. Uh, please, uh, please feel free to get in touch. Um, uh, our job is to answer the phone, and uh, we try and do that to the best of our ability. Uh, thank you for your time today. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. One question. Um, back on slide nine, it showed the aging of the mm -hmm. uh, whistleblower, whistleblower items, and there were five that were still 270 plus days and uh, pending resolution. Um, are you at liberty to discuss what those five are, and do you have any expectation on when they'll be resolved? Um, the expectation is sooner rather than later. Uh, however, um, that, uh, that expectation isn't always uh, met. Um, there can be any number of reasons for us to, to go long. Mm -hmm. um, most often, uh, those five that are hanging out there um, are often complaints uh, about law enforcement uh, that aren't appropriately or charter referred to uh, the Department of Public uh, Police Accountability, for example. 
Um, so if we have a complaint about a uh, post-certified staff member, whether it's police or sheriff, they go through a different process, which is a state process compared to our city process. And that can go on a little bit longer. Uh, there are other times when we'll have an employee who we need to speak to um, who is out on a leave, um, whether or not it's related to the underlying conduct that we're gonna talk to them about. Uh, that can be another reason for uh, some of these investigations to go a little bit longer than the 90 days we strive to, to finish them up in. Um, but each, uh, each report we get is, is largely very different and those are some of the circumstances by which those complaints can take longer to resolve than uh, they typically do within the 90 days we get them done. Okay, thank you. Sure. Anything else? Thank you, Dave, and the entire whistleblower staff for your excellent work in this wonderful um, uh, presentation also. One question I do have, is there any talk of um, increasing the goal next year of 75% closed? It seems like you all are meeting or exceeding that goal every year. Um, it's, this is 75% of cases closed within 90 days. I think you guys are usually at 80 or more percent, correct? Uh, historically, we have been. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we've got a great bunch of people who are really helping us hit that number. Um, if we are going to try and improve our policies and procedures and practices and take a look at that every time, every day, as you know, uh, conditions on the ground warrant, you know, that'll certainly be something that we would want to take a look at. And I'm happy to have that discussion with you when we meet in a couple weeks yeah. um, to see what might be an appropriate metric for us to, to change to. Okay, great. All right, are there any other questions for the whistleblower team? Natasha, can you take public comment? Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no public comments. I did receive one comment uh, for this item via email ahead of the meeting that I will read out now. The current whistleblower program report shows that some complaints are referred to agencies with chartered jurisdiction. We are told exactly how many of the complaints go to each of these departments. In total, 20% of quarter two complaints were referred out by law. But many other complaints are referred back to the very departments accused of wrongdoing. These co-sourced investigations are overseen by the whistleblower program. Why conceal the percentage of self-investigated complaints? In reports brimming with numbers, this omission is suspect. Disclosing the percentage of co-sourced investigations would clarify the balance between direct and referred investigations. Disclosing that most complaints are sent to the accused departments would prompt scrutiny of oversight mechanisms and potential conflicts of interest. GOBOC should request a breakdown of cases directly investigated by whistleblower staff versus those that are referred for self-investigation and monitored. That is the only public comment received. All right, thank you. Can you move on to item number nine, please? Item number nine, opportunity for committee members to comment or take action on any matters within the committee's jurisdiction. First up will be the audits unit, public integrity. Good morning, committee members, Vice Chair Crawford, Mark De La Rosa, Director of Audits for the Controller's Office. Uh, for item 9A, I will take that on. Uh, regarding our uh, CSA audits public integrity uh, work. Um, since your last meeting in December, uh, we have not issued any new public integrity 
uh, deliverables since then. We are, however, working on a number of related uh, assessments, uh, one of which we'll be issuing in the uh, coming weeks. It's related to the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission uh, purchasing uh, processes um, that will be a public integrity uh, assessment. Uh, we're also working on a new public integrity uh, assessment related to the September 2023 um, federal complaint related to the Community Challenge Grant Program at the uh, department or the uh, city administrator's office. So we will be looking at, or we have been looking at the uh, uh, the grant monitoring and oversight uh, procedures related to, related to that um, that incident. We're also working on our third year um, annual report that will be the status of public integrity recommendations. Um, those are the key deliverables. Uh, another line of work related to public integrity is providing assistance to the city attorney's office on their investigations related to um, individuals and contractors. Happy to answer any questions. Seeing none, uh, item 9B is city services auditor mid-year updates. I'll provide the updates for CSA audits and Natasha Mihal will provide updates on the city performance side. Um, for CSA audits, we basically continue uh, similar to our previous um, update to you on our FY23-24 priorities. Uh, one of the key uh, buckets of work that we do in audits is our risk-based and mandated audits and assessments. Uh, we, for example, uh, issued in January an assessment of the SF safe invoices uh, related to their grant agreement with the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, that is just one of many um, or a number of engagements that we have related to nonprofits as well as key business processes uh, citywide. Um, other ongoing audits include uh, geo bond and construction related audits. Uh, we do have uh, three audits that are currently ongoing on construction um, closeout of, of, um, of projects, uh, one at the port, one at Public Works, and another at Rec Park. Uh, we also have our ongoing um, audits of key business processes related to procurement, related to gift cards, uh, leases, and other mandated work. Um, as previously um, uh, noted on the uh, uh, whistleblower program, that's another uh, line of work that our, um, our team has been uh, prioritizing as well. Uh, another related uh, matter is um, our COVID-19 and, and winter storms disaster cost recovery. So as you know, um, the controller's office serves as the citywide cost recovery lead whenever there is an emergency or a disaster. So we have been continuing our work uh, in submitting our reimbursements for the COVID-19 disaster, uh, as well as any recent um, incidents that have happened. Um, we continue to adhere to the uh, government audit standards, and our division is actually going to uh, be undergoing our peer review um, in July of 2024 uh, as part of our uh, generally accepted government auditing standards requirements. Any questions for CSA audits before I turn it over to Natasha? Good morning, Natasha Mihal, City Performance Director. Uh, since our last meeting, as you'll see in the meeting materials, we published a slew of annual reports. 
Um, most of this is our mandated work. So in the performance measurement space, which is a key, um, key factor in our charter mandate, we issued a, an annual report on all performance measures for city departments. There are over 800 performance measures. Each department has a set of goals with measures underneath it. We have a team who work with departments to update those measures as relevant. Uh, and then beginning this spring, we work with the departments and the mayor's office on updating any performance targets that will then go into the mayor's budget book on June 1st. So it's a really interesting report. We tried to put some highlights up front to try to see the forest for the trees. So there's some links in there in the meeting materials. We also issued the annual report on our park standards program. The parks uh, remained stable at 91% of um, meeting maintenance standards. Uh, generally, a park is meeting an acceptable standard at 85% and, and almost n uh, nine out of 10 parks scored at that level. This report gives the Recreation and Parks Department some really good information about which parks are underperforming as well as which types of features are underperforming at parks, whether that is related to custodians, guardian, um, guardians, um, gardeners. Um, and we're gonna continue to work with them closely and actually building out some operational uh, dashboards for them to use to be looking at a more regular basis as these quarterly evaluation results come in. The Our City, Our Home program um, that this, the city performance group manages, we issued the annual report. Um, that, excuse me, details the $295.7 million that was spent in those Prop C funds. Um, in, in this report, uh, we reported that 27,600 362 households received services through these funds, and it brought online an additional uh, 1,191 units. We also issued the nonprofit fiscal and compliance monitoring annual report. And so this covers, uh, we work with 12 different departments to take a look at uh, nonprofits who have contracts with multiple departments or even with one department over a million dollars. So in the pool, we had 197 nonprofits, which account for $1.4 billion of services, which is 92% of all nonprofits uh, spending in the city. We did place four nonprofits on elevated concern, so we are working with them on a corrective action policy. Um, and working with that nonprofit and the departments on how to meet the areas they did not um, meet. Upcoming, we have a few um, items that will be issued. Uh, we've been working with the Department of Public Health, looking at treatment facility acquisition. So what are some of the options and considerations for the city to be able to expand behavioral health uh, capacity? So this is taking a look at everything from uh, the city building facilities for this, the city giving money to nonprofits, the city providing lo loans to nonprofits. Um, how can the city expand these needed services? We are also planning on issuing um, a, a hospital or ambulance diversion memo. So we've been working with the Emergency Medical Services Agency, which is housed in the Department of Emergency Management, to look at some of the factors and considerations that are causing delays of hospitals, uh, sorry, of ambulances being able to um, enter into the emergency room. So we've been working also with the fire department and DPH on this. So we'll have some summary of the results and some potential um, 
strategies to try to reduce this very complex system uh, because it's not just city partners. This is also the private hospitals and the private ambulance agencies. Um, as well as our mental health staffing analysis. Uh, we're taking a look at two of the key staffing um, positions that are both by the city and nonprofits to look at what some of the vacancy issues are and uh, hiring strategies that we can do as a city to increase, um, increase that capacity for that very important service area. Uh, we continue to do a lot of our work is not actually um, published necessarily. Uh, we do try to provide summaries so that we can show uh, what we are working on. But even though it's only the end of February, we are starting our work planning for the current, for the fiscal year that starts July 1st. Uh, we'll be doing that with audits um, as we share a budget to make sure that we are across both sides addressing issues across the city um, and we're looking forward to having a new controller who will be sworn in on Thursday, Greg Wagner, who's coming over from the Department of Public Health. He's been their chief operating officer for many years and knows our work very well, uh, so we're excited to have him. And then today, um, we're gonna have the team give some highlights of an upcoming report on our general obligation bond report and I will turn it over to them in a second unless there are questions for me on the CSA updates. So Ben is leaving? Ben is leaving, yes. I thought I read that, but then I thought I might have it wrong. Yeah, so it is his last day on Thursday. Oh. Well, I'll try to go by and say goodbye to him. Is he <laughs> retiring or just moving to a different position? He is. He will be moving to a different position. I don't think he knows what it is yet. I think he's going to take a little bit of a break but he is not retiring. Good for him. Right, well, tell him I said hello and Will best do. wishes, but I'll try to get by. Yes. Natasha, when, when you report out on the various departments' performance measures, how, what, what's kind of the outcome? So if a department doesn't meet its performance goals, what happens? It's a very good question. We are not, um, we do not have the responsibility to manage those departments. What we try to do is make sure that that information is public. So some of the different users of our information could be commissions who oversee departments. It should be department heads to also know how they're doing. Um, the Board of Supervisors, the Mayor's Office, um, they tend to use this more during the budget book process because we do print the performance measures in the budget book and so that tends to be, but there's often hearings related to a particular topic where some of those performance measures will come up. Uh, Natasha, one question. Um, I think it ties back to departments that work with nonprofits and monitoring any grants that they receive. I recall um, it might have been two or three meetings ago that we had discussed the timeliness of financial audits for those entities. Yes. Um, was there a decision about what constitutes timely? Yes, so the timeliness, and unfortunately the definition is the most recent fiscal year, and the reason is nonprofits can be on different fiscal years, June to June, et cetera. So when we are doing fiscal year reporting for that, we have a defined fiscal year. It has to be the most recent fiscal year for them. We, we don't want it to be within two months, um, so there's, I think, a six-month buffer. If you, if you end uh, December of 2022, for example, as a nonprofit, when we are monitoring fiscal year 22-23, which ends June 23, then, then it would be required for the date that ends December 2022. 
Okay, so they have to be able to provide a financial audit within six months of the end of their fiscal year. Yes. Okay. Okay, I will bring up the team here. Good question. Good morning, everyone. I'm Janice Levy. I am a project manager in City Performance here today to introduce the uh, team in City Performance who has been working so hard on our uh, annual general obligation bond program report. Um, so uh, I will introduce Alexis Lozano and Kai Matsumoto Hines as we pull up the um, slide deck. So uh, this is, uh, was originally an annual report. We've been doing this reporting on a biannual basis. So the last time um, you saw this report was a little while ago. Uh, so this report will be covering the time period from July 1st, 2021 through June 30th, 2023. Um, and we will, uh, this will be organized very similarly to prior reports. We will be going into each bond in detail um, talking through the citywide issues that we have discovered and, and kind of brought uh, forward in some of our uh, previous work. And um, we'll be talking a little bit about the updates. And we also include a watch list of the bond programs. So with that, um, we'll be publishing in the next month or so. Um, and we are happy to take questions if there's anything you'd like us to address in the final report. But today, we'll be just giving you the highlights. And I'll turn it over to Alexis for um, a discussion of our methodology. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Thanks, Janice. Alexis Lozano, an analyst for the city performance team. So I will be starting by briefly going through our methodology for the work that we did on the bond or that is currently underway. So we started um, in the early fall um, and getting information from um, bond program managers on scope, schedule, and budget. And after reviewing some of that initial data, we scheduled interviews with them and then summarized some of that information into uh, what is now our draft report. So we are in the final phases of that right now. We have sent drafts to bond program managers and are receiving feedback and integrating that. Um, so we'll be presenting some of our initial findings here. So if you're familiar with the report, um, a lot of these visuals will look very familiar to you. Not a lot has changed. Um, similar to last year, we're really focusing our analysis on um, budget changes, schedule delays, and scope changes. Um, so in the visual on the top left, uh, what we look at is the original projected end date for each of the components um, compared to what the end date that was provided to us um, at the end of June of 2021, and then uh, an end date that is now projected as of June 30, 2023. And then um, for the narrative uh, is where we really focus on uh, any scope changes. And then in the bottom right, you'll see with, for the bond expenditures and encumbrances, um, that is where we're really, really looking at the budget. So what is the original budget? Uh, what has been expended, encumbered, and issued as of June 30th, 2023, to then understand um, what is remaining as of that time. Right. 
All right, so this is a visual from our executive summary, which shows the eight bond programs that we define as active. Um, so there are two that have fell out since our last report that we are now considering functionally complete, and that includes the 2014 ESER and the 2015 affordable housing, uh, meaning that they have less than 5% of their authorized amount remaining. Um, so they have, they're mostly in administrative closeout at this point, so we, we cover them briefly in the budget, but do not go into their scope and schedule in, in the report. Uh, so this chart is just an overview of all the active bond programs, um, and you will also notice we have a new bond in this, in this report, which is the 2020 Health and Recovery, um, and the total authorization for all eight of these bonds is $3.5 billion. All right, and uh, so we basically segment uh, these bond programs out by program area. So there are two that we are that we have in the Parks Health and Recovery uh, General Obligation Bond pro Program, um, and so this is very high level financial summary as of June 30th, 2023, uh, showing the budget, what's been issued, expended, and encumbered, and remaining. Um, so there are the two active. Parks Health and Recovery Geo Bonds, uh, the 2012 CSNP and the 2020 Health and Recovery in here that have um, a combined total of 376 and a half million remaining as of June 30, 2023. And then there are the two active um, affordable housing geo bond programs uh, that subsidize the new construction and preservation of affordable housing units as we got a really thorough uh, summary earlier today. Uh, so that's the 2019 affordable housing and the 2016 pass. Um, so we cover the 2015 affordable housing here briefly, but again, we, we're not really covering it in the report. And just a slight, um, slight typo here, it, it, there's actually a $516.5 million remaining between the two active bonds. So we'll, we'll be updating that. It is not 520 million. Okay, and then here are the three active public health and safety bonds, uh, the 2020 ESER, the 2018 Seawall, and the 2016 public health and safety. Uh, this is the largest policy area grouping of bonds with uh, $957.5 million remaining, and uh, 2014 ESER is now functionally complete. And lastly, we have our one transportation deal bond with uh, $119.4 million remaining as of June 30, 2023. All right, and uh, again, if you're familiar with our last report, we also uh, included a section of the report that has our watch list. Um, so focusing really on the schedule of different components of each bond, uh, what we saw this year is that there are 21 components um, that are uh, delayed compared to 13 components that are delayed from the last report. So to go through some of these, uh, the 2012 CSNP, 
Um, the neighborhood parks is delayed two years from the last report. Um, there are, I think, approximately three projects that are contributing to delays and final closeout. However, I think all of these are fully open to the public. There are just some really slight modifications happening. Um, and the port that manages the waterfront parks component is having issues with one project in particular, uh, Agua Vista, uh, which is connected to Mission Bay Ferry Landing, which is delayed, and that is contributing to those delays for that piece. For the 2016 preservation and seismic safety, um, all three components are delayed. Um, you know, as you know, they're they're pretty unique in that it's a loan program compared to the other bond programs, and past loans blend all funding, so the schedule impacts all three components at the same time, which is why they're all three delayed. Um, and what we heard from the team is that is really due to the, the shifting um, interest rate environment. I think they went out through that today, that there's been quite um, an increase, which potentially delays the, the last um, issuance of funds that plan to go out. All right, and for um, the 2019 affordable housing, all four of the components are also experiencing delays. I'll note that there's a, a zero in that far right column. That's because I think there was a more ambitious timeline that was projected in the last report, and they have since uh, gone back to that, um, that other timeline, which is why there's to hopefully avoid confusion there. Um, and I think all of these delays are are proceeding as planned. However, there were some challenges, I think particularly with staffing in, the, in that two-year time frame and um, coordinating with state resources to fill funding gaps. However, everything is proceeding as planned. I think there was just one project that was noted as kind of having some issues, which was Lacuna Honda uh, Hospital Senior Housing Project. And then I think that the loss of a temporary loss of accreditation was um, a challenge for that project. And then for the 2020 Health and Recovery, these are both new bonds, uh, new additions to here, but we just wanted to note there, there's some slight delays since issuance. Uh, so RPD manages the neighborhood parks component, and that delay is mostly noted due to um, coordinating additional funding to scope out and figure out those final neighborhood projects. Um, and for the street structures and plazas, I think a uh, slight delay, I think it's because the scope is still really being determined because it's otherwise a really small pool of funds and their DPW is trying to leverage and determine uh, how to best allocate those funds. Um, and I will pass it to Kai to go through the rest of the watch list. Good morning, commissioners. Uh, so I'll be talking about the public health and safety and transportation bonds. Uh, starting off with the 2014 TRI bond, there are six components that have been delayed about two years since the last report. Uh, one thing to note with MTA's projects is within each of their components, they contain a lot of projects. And so while the component as a whole may seem like it's delayed, uh, individual projects may already be complete. Uh, so for example, the last four components under TRI that you see there, uh, over 50% of those projects have been completed already. Um, and then the first component, accessibility improvements, uh, that's the bark canopies improvements uh, that will be complete in 2026. And then the Caltrain upgrades, that's the electrification project that will be complete in 2024. 
Uh, the 20, move into the 2016 public health and safety bond, uh, the main component within there that has been delayed by about a year since the last report. Uh, that project has been delayed because of the difficulties around uh, scheduling at an active hospital site. Uh, so construction teams have to coordinate with clinical operations to minimize impacts to their day-to-day uh, -day activities. Uh, and then as well as the building is from the 1970s, so they've encountered a number of unforeseen conditions. Um, so that has required some design review, um, and each time they go back to design the project, they have to go to the state uh, Department of Healthcare and Access, so getting those approvals has added to the time. Moving to the 2020 Easter Bond, um, starting with the emergency firefighting water systems, that component is to upgrade the underground network of pipelines on the west side of the city. Um, uh, this project has been delayed due to supply chain uh, issues where um, the, uh, some of the materials have taken over a year to arrive on site. Um, moving to the neighborhood fire stations, this component is building the new fire training facility in the Bayview District. Uh, this component was delayed due to staff turnover at Public Works, uh, as well as uh, ongoing no negotiations between Public Works and the fire department. Uh, moving to the disaster response facility, this component funds the upgrades to the Kizar Pavilion. Uh, this component was delayed due to the need for more robust site assessments than were originally anticipated. So this is like geotech, uh, topographic, and utility assessments at the site. And in addition to that, the site is a historic landmark, so the team had to work with uh, the planning department, and they also had to work with the historic architect. And so during the course of the project, the architect's company was sold to a state, to an entity in a state banned by 12X, or chapter 12 of the state city administrative code. Um, and so finding a replacement for that architect took some time. Uh, so that concludes our overview of the active geo bonds. So we'll be talking about some of the citywide issues uh, that were brought up in the last report. And so we, these issues were identified in the last report and we asked bond program managers uh, if these issues have gotten better, have, have they stayed the same, or if they've gotten worse. And based on these discussions, these issues remain largely, largely unchanged, um, and in some cases have gotten worse. Mm -hmm. So starting with city regulations, we continue to see that contracting policies impact construction projects. Uh, for example, the city's local business hiring requirement um, means that it can be difficult for uh, teams to find qualified contractors from time to time. Um, and also the low cost bid selection continues to be the primary contract award method. Moving to permitting and approvals, uh, we continue to see the impact of lengthy permit processing times. However, some exceptions have allowed project, uh, certain projects to advance more quickly than others. Uh, homelessness, particularly homelessness related construction projects receive priority review under a citywide emergency ordinance and those project teams report a reduction in processing times of over 30%. Uh, Move into external agency approvals, or sorry, still internal permitting. Departments must continue to seek approval from multiple agencies and commissions. Uh, many projects must be approved by the newly created Public Works Commission, and project teams also report that 
the minimum dollar threshold for the, uh, the projects to be approved by that commission is a little low at $1 million, which means that many smaller projects end up uh, needing approval by that commission. So uh, that adds to project timelines as well. And lastly, external agency approvals. We heard that receiving approval from external agencies such as PG&E and Caltrans continues to be an issue for project teams. Uh, next, we've got bond planning. So pre-bond funding is really useful, but the amount of funding available is limited and the budget has not grown and, and this will continue to be an issue. Um, and then also project cost estimation. Uh, while project cost estimates have come down since peak COVID highs, um, the various tools that uh, teams use to estimate costs uh, still varies greatly. And so sometimes the estimates that they receive from different vendors varies greatly. Uh, moving on to capital administration, departments continue to use a variety of de decentralized tools for tracking expenditure and assets. Uh, and the city's contractor evaluation system is currently not utilized and is under evaluation. Uh, moving on to deferred maintenance, the city's backlog of cap capital maintenance continues to grow and outpace the availability of funds. And so this will continue to grow as we go on. And lastly, the city lacks a consistent maintenance standards, which conti continues to contribute to uh, a lack of upkeep for city facilities. So that concludes our overview of citywide issues. And so as part of this, um, our group undertook a benchmarking effort uh, to find out if other cities across the U.S. are experiencing similar sorts of issues related to capital projects. And so we spoke with six different cities, which you can see on the screen here. Um, and so this also satisfies our charter mandate, uh, which we are required to benchmark San Francisco against other cities. Um, and then in these discussions, uh, we concluded that generally most of the cities are facing similar issues. So it's a difficult, uh, difficult area. Um, and then in parallel, the city administrator's office is also assessing how we can improve our capital project delivery. And so this benchmarking effort will feed into their efforts as well. Uh, next slide, please. And so these are some of the topic areas that we uh, interviewed different jurisdictions in. Um, for a full list of details uh, from this benchmarking work, uh, you can find that in our published report once that comes out. And that concludes our presentation. Any questions? Yes. Um, in discussing delays, this, is, this covers every type of delay that a project might encounter. Does it also include contractor delays, in other words, something that is owner-caused, the city-caused, and results in really large extra charges before the, from the contractor. In other words, you pay more money to get your project delivered late and watch a bunch of guys standing around leaning on shovels. How much of what you've discussed here is that? I believe this, this does include all of those delays as well. That right? Yeah, yeah. Those are Schedule. in anathema. For the information that was in the the that schedule, the watch list, is that what you're referring to? I'm sorry. Uh, for when we were discussing each of the bond components, those delays. That's what you're referring to. 
think so. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the delays that we, uh, the projected end dates that we received from program managers, uh -huh. those do include all, all okay. types of delays. Right. Yeah. So there could be a bunch of that included in those delays. Correct. Right. Um, are, are there steps that the city is taking to reduce the amount of delay that they get from coordination among different agencies? You know, these kind of self-inflicted wounds due to, well, lack of cooperation in some cases. That uh, should be a priority. Yes, it's, it's definitely an important area. Um, Janice, do you want to take this one? Yeah, so thank you for that question. I think um, in our report, we have highlighted um, different delays due to interdepartmental coordination as well as coordination with external bodies. And we're gonna be highlighting in the report several areas where we've seen some, uh, let's say, bright spots of some improvement and better coordination, but a lot of um, areas for continued improvement. And I think that's something that we will try to highlight in this report and um, continue, uh, continue to monitor and, and kind of incorporate into our work planning and our projects um, over the next uh, coming fiscal year, as Natasha mentioned. We'll follow that with interest. Is this um, report, the, the, the PowerPoint that you presented, is, is that available? I, I didn't see it in the package that I looked at online. Uh, it's the final link in the agenda, I believe, on, okay. online. And, and I could easily have missed that. I will go back and look for it. Okay, thank you. I have a question about the benchmarking study. How long did that take? And how often do you do that according to the charter? I mean, what's the mandate? Uh, the mandate is fairly high level. I don't think it requires us to um, uh, have a benchmarking schedule. However, we undertake benchmarking in a variety of ways in city performance to meet our charter mandate. So um, we uh, do kind of a variety of types of benchmarking. This one was a qualitative interview-based benchmarking. It was not a, um, you know, a comparison of performance metrics across uh, multiple jurisdictions. We do that kind of benchmarking in other areas. Um, and so we have, we do benchmarking as a part of projects and also as standalone projects as well. So a variety of those that'll be covered kind of in our, our performance uh, plan and for the following year. How long did it take, this one? This one, I think we started um, developing the interviews and reaching out to contacts and figuring out who our, our appropriate peer jurisdictions were for the subject matter, probably beginning of summer, and we did um, probably interviews over the course of the summer. And as you can imagine, um, these sorts of things do take a little bit of time because you have to get people on people's calendars. They're all very busy taking vacations and doing a lot of um, very important work. So this did take a little bit of time and we wrapped it up probably in a couple of months, I think, of, of work. Yeah. I have a question. On slide 11, uh, I think the second, you should go to that real quick. Yes. Um, I believe, what does it say that the, the second box in that item was? Oh. Um, could you bring it up? Uh, yeah. Or, oh. uh, are we able to pull that up on the screen? Do we need to do something? Okay, cool. The low cost bid selection could result in realistic or weaker bids. Is there, you know, if that's a, it's proven to be a consistent problem, 
is there a solution of something like um, having responsible bidding process where the contractors that are submitting uh, bids on these projects have to go through a survey on their uh, work on the performance history, any type of violations, whether it be insurance or wage violations, and their their solvency, like how well they're put together, as far as you know, because that would also show that they're a good company that is ahead of the game and getting the materials, and they're they do what they do well. Um, instead of being the most the lo just the lo it would be the lowest responsible contractor. Yeah, so city departments use a variety of um, contracting methods, um, and in this case, we're highlighting the um, kind of low-cost bid option uh, for doing your contracting. And yes, that is a concern, and I think something that we continue to see um, as we're talking with bond program managers and other city stakeholders, that there are factors that can be considered as a part of... Um, performance that is not restricted to low-cost bid. I know this is something that departments are monitoring very closely, however. So they monitor it, so they watch the train wreck happen, but are they doing anything to fix it? I can't speak on behalf of the departments, um, but I do know that this is an issue we plan to cover in our report and hopefully, again, incorporate as part of our work planning for some, some support that we can provide to departments in the future. I'm just thinking out loud and, you know, so out of place, but bonds, this is city, you know, taxpayer money, can there be any type of like just structure and that being part of the process for when this money is given to these projects saying that, hey, have responsible bidding? Uh, I'm as far as I know, I think departments do do that review when they're selecting contractors, but I think um, ultimately they, they might go with the lowest cost uh, due to financial reasons. But again, we can't really comment on behalf of the department, so. No, and, I, and that's the, that's the, that's mm -hmm. the, um, uh, not the, what is it? Uh, that's the rub, is that you, they try to save money, made up costing more money because of delays, because they show somebody too cheap. Right, that's correct, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a difficult challenge. Appreciate the, the response, thank you. Um, one more question, and it kind of falls on the comments I made earlier today about overhead. Um, obviously, overhead allocation can be a significant component of any capital program. Um, of course, necessary services in order to execute a capital program. Uh, do you look at all at how overhead is allocated um, in the city, the reasonableness of that? Um, does it follow a standard or other guidelines? I remember in, in a past life, we would look to like OMB Circular A87 as guidance for that. Um, have, you, have you assessed it as well? Uh, we have not assessed that specific uh, question in this particular report, but I think it's um, a really interesting topic of conversation, and we're happy to kind of take a look at that and consider it again for our future work planning. Thank you. If I could address one last thing. So the local hire was another thing that was an issue, something that contractors were having a difficult time. Um, and being, being coming from the industry, you know, it seems, is it really that much of a difficulty or is it that the contractors just don't want to try because <laughs> there's, there's a lot available in the city and county of San Francisco to meet those mm -hmm. standards? Yeah, there's just so much here. We do so much to help Absolutely. contractors hire people locally. Have you seen any specific? Is it is it uh, 
again, does it go to a contractor that's not from this area? Is it go? Is it because of a contractor that's from out of the Bay Area that that's doing this work that pushes back on that the hardest? Um, so I would say in that section of the report, that's um, just one of the many examples that we'll cover in a little bit more detail. Um, I don't think, I, I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of um, programs that we have in the city that um, help contractors with um, their requirements. Um, and so um, while this isn't like a, a, an in-depth uh, kind of analysis of how one particular issue impacts um, you know, one particular project, those are kind of questions that we can continue to raise through this report. So yes, I think that's a very valid point that there's a lot of um, assistance that is provided to help people meet those, uh, those goals. And so we'll, we'll definitely be interested in diving into that further in the report. Appreciate that, thank you. I forgot, this is, this is the highlights. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Lots of examples. All right. Yes. Um, one other question you mentioned. Uh, some of the departments have trouble with the competitive bidding process, which, you know, it's a, it's a state law. Mm -hmm. But there are alternate methods of project procurement that they could use. For instance, I know the city in the past has used um, negotiator procurement in some situations. And I think their experience with that has been good. And I could speaking of someone who's had some experience with both sides of it, I'd say, yeah, it is good. Cause you know, if it's, it's competitively bid, it's just, you get the lowest, what lowest competent and compliant bidder. And you, the owner, the city in this case could have negative experience going back decades with that same contractor. But if they're responsive, and then, then they get the job. So things like pre-qualifying and then going through a negotiated procurement process eliminate some of those problems. Will your recommendations include things like that or is that beyond your purview? I think what we've seen is that there's a lot of different kind of procurement methods that we've seen. Um, and one of the challenges is also that we have several different departments um, who are, um, leveraging some of these procurement tools and so some of the processes differ um, between some of the departments and so that's another reason why um, some of the some of the challenges that departments are facing um, in in their implementation um, so we see differences between departments we see a variety of contracting methods and while this report is not necessarily a, a kind of comprehensive um, analysis of uh, procurement methods or trying to highlight at a high level some of the challenges. Well, it would be a daunting task to <laughs> all of it, but whatever you can do, I'm sure it'll be worthwhile. Absolutely, we appreciate the um, insight and perspective. Okay. <laughs> could, you, could you pull up slide six? I think it might be six, I could be wrong. Have more fun out there. <laughs> yeah, we're missing something. Uh, maybe five. Maybe five. All right. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'm just curious about the choice to put the 2020 health and recovery uh, bond issue in its entirety in this section, <laughs> and not include the 200 million allocated to affordable housing in that section. This is a a question we have been discussing <laughs> as a group extensively. This is a very 
um, expansive in scope uh, bond, and um, we put it in this slide here. Um, we are taking feedback on how to um, incorporate it into the uh, report, and so if you have any recommendations, we're very open to, to your suggestions as you're very familiar with this one. Yeah, I know it's tricky to like split it up. I, I would think as a member of the public, I'd be more interested in knowing there's another 200 million in affordable housing. That's just my opinion. No, I appreciate that, and I think we can consider kind of breaking up the components and putting them in um, the appropriate subject matter area, and maybe um, the comprehensive look of the bond would yeah. still be a, a cohesive chapter, but we can maybe highlight the financials in various parts of the uh, report. I really appreciate the feedback. Any other questions? Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Alrighty. Good, uh, good morning, committee members. My name is Bo Scott. I'm with the Controller's Office of Public Finance. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you all today. And I do have a couple of updates for you uh, as far as our forward debt calendar since we last met in December. Um, so most timely uh, of these updates is probably the series 2024 R1 general obligation uh, refunding bonds. So OPF just introduced uh, the sale resolution at the Board of Supervisors meeting on February 6th, 2024. Um, we expect that resolution and its accompanying appropriation ordinance uh, to be considered at the board in March 2024. Um, and then given that timeline, OPF would expect to close on those bonds in May of calendar year 2024. Um, so the second update to the forward calendar um, is that later, uh, further ahead in the year, fiscal year 2025, we do expect to issue the final issuance of 2019 affordable housing bonds. Um, so stay tuned for that. And then I am here to answer any questions if you have any. Um, and it, it ties together with the fact that we just had the geo bond report. Um, does your office monitor for spend down test when for bond proceeds? Uh, generally speaking, before we even get into the structure of a general obligation bond, we would work with the department to provide us with a spend down schedule. Yeah. And then, so as after the bond's been issued and the departments are spending down their proceeds, do you monitor how close they are to the three-year threshold for, for IRS requirements? Sure, no, we certainly stay in communication with departments throughout the life of their bond if they still have funds sitting in an account. Um, we do work with them to kind of, we, you know, we can't make them spend any money, but we do certainly work with them to make sure that they're aware of the IRS requirements. We've recently worked in uh, certain trainings uh, so that they're very, very aware. Um, but yeah, from, from a public finance perspective, we can't necessarily make the projects work any faster. Um, are there any programs or any bond issuances that are close to or, or past their three-year spend-down test? Um, you know, I, I don't have a comprehensive list at the top of my head. I will say that departments have generally been pretty good at spending. Okay. Um, but I can certainly follow up uh, via email. With sure, that'd be helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Final item of our calendar. Here. 
I will have to get back to you once I'm over there on my computer on our, our next meeting, um, which we will have in April to review the topics. Um, are there any questions on any items in this section? Well, the work plan else you're trying to bring up. Sorry, what was that? Yes, but I'm seeing it's not on the website. I thought it was there, but I, it might be in a different section. I just can't find right now. I can pull it up in a minute, but I can read for public comment. Any questions? No? Yeah, go ahead and go to public comment. Members of the public who wish to provide in-person public comment on this item, please line up at the podium now. Each person will have three minutes to speak. For the record, there are no in-person public comments. So from you guys. Okay. <laughs> I guess our last item is to adjourn. Yes. I move to adjourn. <laughs> Great. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned at 11.28 a.m. You right on time. Cool. Right. Full two hours. So do you yeah, know the yeah, date yeah, of the next they meeting? Got, they got okay, their money's worth I out of us. I am likely to have a conflict. <laughs>